Well, I've been thinking a lot lately about uh, Christmas back home in Florida with my family because we leave on December 13th to spend two weeks in Florida with my relatives and then two weeks in Georgia with April's relatives. And I'm very excited, obviously, to see family and friends, and I'm very excited, honestly, to have some warmer weather. But I have to be honest as well and say I'm very excited about the food because food in the Deep South is not at all healthy, but it is fantastically good. (laughs) And so I'll never forget, just by way of example, once whenever I was in college being invited to preach at a small church near the college that I intended. And I preached the sermon for them. There were several lovely people in the congregation. After I finished, they invited me to stay for a church lunch. And as I walked into their fellowship hall, They treated me as this honored guest. I was the young Bible college student who had come to preach for them that morning. And so they gave me a tour of all of the dishes that were there on the kitchen counter in the fellowship hall. And so you had the meat section and you had the dessert section. And in the middle was a vegetable section. And I noticed that in the vegetable section were three casserole dishes of macaroni and cheese. Because in the South, macaroni and cheese is a vegetable. And David knows about what I'm speaking. And that's no exaggeration. Now, the thing about Southern food, especially when it comes to dessert, is that it can be layered. And so you can have icing, and then a layer of some sort of cake, and then another layer of icing, and it just goes on and on. And so one of my favorites dessert desserts is a seven-layer chocolate cake, which literally is just seven layers of chocolate cake. Now, I bring this up tonight, not to make you hungry, but because on the way to the church this evening, I was thinking that in some ways my sermon, if you'll bear with me in terms of illustration, is layered. Because we do have the Christmas of 2017 that we are celebrating, and at least we're preparing to celebrate tonight. But then there's another layer. We have the fact that anytime we read this text from Isaiah, we read it through the lens of what's being said in Matthew and in Luke, because Isaiah 9 appears in the Gospels. And so that's another layer. We're reading uh, this text through the lens of Matthew and of Luke and several other New Testament writers. But then another layer would be just what Isaiah is writing in his own day. And so to do justice, I think, to this text and to this evening, as we all come together into the Christmas season, we need to address all three layers. We have to be faithful to what Isaiah is saying here in his text. But we read this text as Christians, and so we want to be faithful to how the gospel writers have interpreted it. That's another layer. And then we also want to make application for our own day. That's the top layer. And so we're going to begin, as it were, at the bottom and work our way up to the top. We're going to start with Isaiah and move up to application at the end. And so looking at Isaiah's context, what's fascinating is that this text, as beautiful as it is to our ears, was written in a time of difficulty, trial, and tremendous political instability. At this time, and we learn this from Isaiah chapter 7, on the throne in Judah, the southern kingdom, was a man by the name of King Ahaz. 
And Ahaz was deeply disturbed because the northern kingdom, Israel, and Syria had joined an alliance together. And they were putting pressure on Judah, the southern kingdom, where King Ahaz was reigning, to join with them in order to fight against, or at least repel, the great superpower of that day, Assyria. And it seemed to their eyes that Assyria was really unmatched in its strength because it was traversing all across this region of the world at this time. And so they thought by putting tremendous pressure on Ahaz, they could join all of their forces in some sort of alliance. Now, Isaiah warned Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7 that he should not put his trust in political alliances because it would be God who would provide the deliverance. God would be faithful to the promises that he had made to David and to David's descendants. And so Ahaz is strongly rebuked by Isaiah several times to have full confidence that God alone is deliverer. Now, unfortunately, instead of having firmness, which is what Isaiah calls him to have, Ahaz has timidity. And he goes to Assyria because when you're being bullied by someone, you might be tempted to think, I'll just find an even bigger bully to stand up for me. And so he goes to Assyria and he says, if you'll provide me for, you'll provide me deliverance from Syria and Israel, I will be basically your vassal state. And so now Judah is placing itself under the Assyrian Empire. And this is something that is shameful because it shows not only a dramatic distrust in God and God's power to save, it shows a dramatic uh, embarrassment for Judah, which is supposed to be the line of David. Now you find in Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah's response through the Lord. And you see here that Isaiah is prophesying doom and gloom. Now, there are moments in which there are encouraging statements that are made that God will one day bring mercy and deliverance. But there is going to be now for the kingdom of Judah judgment. And to just get a flavor of what's happening there, look just one verse above from where we read in chapter 9. Look in verse 22 at the end of chapter 8. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Now, that's a difficult text, and that's the response. Because what Isaiah knows is that even though Ahaz thinks that Assyria will be liberators, One day, Assyria, with all of its might and all of its power, will be oppressors, even to Judah. And there are dark days to come. Now, what's fascinating is that in chapter 9, where we started to read tonight, there is this striking contrast. So we go from darkness and gloom. Notice how verse 1 begins. And by the way, in the original text, this is all just a flowing, cohesive unit. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. 
In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea. And so what Isaiah is saying here is that, yes, there is judgment and there is darkness that is coming. But God, in his mercy, will remember to be gracious. And something that no one would expect to happen will happen. The places that are mentioned in chapter 1 are the places that were first invaded by the Assyrians. And Isaiah says that these places that now seem so dark, beyond reach, will be the first places that will see light. And in the end, God in His grace will will give light in verse 2, and the people will actually at one day in the future have joy, verse 3. The people will rejoice just as if a harvest were coming in at harvest time or just as when warriors divide the plunder. Verse 4, and just as how God saved the people when they were oppressed by Midian, and this is the story of Gideon and Judges, he will save them and deliver them now. And the people are exhausted by war and fighting and bloodshed. And you have all of these wonderful texts from verse 4 down about how the war will cease. The rod of the oppressor will be broken and shattered. The boots that were used in battle and rolled up in blood will now be burned. And so there's coming a day when all of this anxiety and political instability and death and destruction and fear will be over. And so judgment is mixed with grace and mercy. And then we have the striking verse, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now Isaiah seems to have a fascination with children in these chapters that surround chapter 9. Because it's not far from this verse that Isaiah says the famous statement, the lion and the lamb will lay down together, and the little child will lead them. And it's not far from this verse in Isaiah chapter 7, where he makes that dramatic statement that we all hear every Christmas day, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you will name him Emmanuel, God is with us. And so this message of a child is pregnant, if you will, (laughs) pardon the pun, in this text, chapter 7, chapter 9, even later in chapter 11. Now what's fascinating is that it does have a meaning relevant to Isaiah's day. If you look back in chapter 7, just a little bit before, in chapter 7, verse 16, he speaks about this boy. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on your house of your fathers a time unlike since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So in Isaiah chapter 7, the child is referring immediately in this context to a boy who will be born in this day. And King Ahaz is the one who's receiving this message. So a young lady will have a son. And before this son is old enough to know right or wrong, Syria 
and Israel will no longer be a threat. But Assyria, the person that Ahaz, the kingdom that Ahaz has aligned with, well, they will come with power and they will come to lay waste. And so this is what the immediate context is. But that's not all that's happening here. Because as I said, we read this with a different layer. The gospel writers knew this text well, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, even Isaiah 11. And they saw that what Isaiah was speaking about was not just a son born in that day, Mehir Shalal Hashbaz is the name of Isaiah's son, which anytime you see that in the text, you have to pronounce it, a word with that many syllables. He's not just speaking about that boy. He's speaking about something that will happen in the future. Because when Jesus begins his public ministry in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew, the writer of the gospel, is trying to explain to his readers who this Jesus person is and what Jesus' public ministry will be like. And Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4, quotes directly Isaiah chapter 9. The people walking in darkness will see light. And in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 1, when Zechariah is filled with the Spirit, and he begins to prophesy about what God is doing and to explain to all of the people what the meaning of God's activity in the world at this time is. In his speech, there are allusions to Isaiah chapter 9. And in the very text that Angus read tonight, as Mary is receiving the word from the angel, we have the message that this one who is to come, to be born of the Virgin Mary, will be the one who was promised long ago of the line of David. And he will be the one to restore the kingdom, the fulfillment of all of the promises that God had made. And so what's happening is, in the Gospels, we see that hey, Isaiah was speaking about his own day, but not just his day, because the, the language here is so strong. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God, the everlasting Father. This applies to someone greater. And it finds its ultimate fulfillment, this text does, in Christ. This is how Christians have always interpreted these passages. Because we're led by the gospel writers themselves. Whenever I was in Sunday school, I used to joke that when I did not know the answer to a question, just say Jesus because about 80% of the time, that's probably correct. Well, in this instance, that's the right answer to this question. To whom is Isaiah, or at least about whom is Isaiah speaking? Well, ultimately, the answer is Jesus. And so this is the layer, as it were, that the Gospels bring onto this text. Isaiah is telling us to look for deliverance, to look for someone, and the Gospels tell us who that person ultimately is. Now, what's striking is that you have in the Gospels and in Isaiah's text studies, I think, in contrast. Ahaz, the king of Jerusalem, is looking for deliverance from great military powers, and he's asking for any sort of help that he can find. He's stretching out even to Assyria for help. 
And in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah talks not about a military conqueror or a great general and leader. He talks about a child. In Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah says there's great darkness and there's great um, anxiety and the people are in this darkness and there's fear and there's a lack of hope. And he says there's a deliverer coming and he says, oh, this deliverer will be. And then he mentions a child. Now, a child is not someone that you would normally expect to bring military victory, as it were, or deliverance. And that's the contrast, that God is bringing the deliverance, but it's in an unexpected way. And that's the story of the Gospels as well. Because when Jesus arrives on the scene, the one who, according to Mark, excuse me, Matthew 4, is the one who is the ultimate deliverer, and according to Luke chapter 1, the one who's the one of David, the promised one from long ago, this great king, when he arrives on the scene, he does not arrive in a palace. He does not arrive with a court around him giving him honor. He's born to a poor family. We know that Mary and Joseph were poor because the sacrifice that they had to offer after Jesus was birthed was the sacrifice that poor people offered. And he's born in kind of suspicious circumstances because Joseph is not his father and Mary is pregnant before the marriage officially takes place. And he's born in what seems to be a powerless situation because even though he's declared to be a king and the promised one of old related to King David himself, he seems to be at the whims of the Roman Empire. The reason that he's born where he was born because, was because Mary and Joseph are having to travel because Rome decreed that all of the earth will be taxed. And they're having to travel for the census. And this young, vulnerable family has to gather up all of their belongings and at the orders of Rome, travel back. And there Jesus is born and what we would consider today to basically be a barn. And his birth is announced not to the rich and to the powerful, it's announced to the shepherds, people who would have been on the outskirts of society, people who would have been considered unclean, who had a lowly occupation. And so this is the deliverer who was promised from long ago. This is the person that everyone has been waiting for. This is the person about whom Isaiah is ultimately speaking. And he's born in this sort of situation. This is the great king, the leader, the one who's going to establish the reign of David's descendants forever and ever. Born in this context, the most unexpected of contexts. And God is doing something unexpected in the Gospels with the birth of Christ. Because what he's doing is he's shaming the rich and the powerful. And he's showing that the message of Christ is indeed, as the Gospel itself says, good news of great joy for all people. Because now when someone is on the outskirts of society, they can look to Christ and say, he can connect with me. He's my deliverer too. And when someone feels as though they've been rejected by everyone and 
anyone, they can point out and say, well, here's Christ who himself was, as it were, rejected and lowly. He knows what it means to be poor. He knows what it means to set aside the glories of heaven, Philippians 2, to be placed in a humble situation to relate to me. Now, as we close out, we finally reach the top layer, as it were. We want to tie all of these strands together. What does this mean today? We have an ancient prophecy from long ago that's fulfilled ultimately in the Gospels. And we see in this prophecy this idea of contrast and turning the world and expectations of the world upside down. Well, today, what it means is that God still does deliver and God still does keep his promises and he still does all of those things in the most unexpected ways. Because the message of deliverance that's still relevant today in 2017 at this Christmas time is a message that's not broadcast necessarily always from the most rich or the most powerful. It's not always a message that's the most accepted or even understood in society. You think if you have the most important message in all of the world, you would think you would find the most uh, bombastic loudest possible way to explain it. Here's by way of illustration, for example. Last Christmas, when I went to the States, the new Star Wars film was released, and everyone was talking about Star Wars, and Disney was doing everything in its power to let people know Star Wars was in the theater. And so every time I would turn on television, there would be a commercial for Revlon makeup, and somehow the makeup would be connected to Star Wars. And it would say, buy this makeup and go see Star Wars, December, whatever. It would be a commercial for Chevy cars. And someone would be driving the car and suddenly they were in outer space. That makes no sense, aside from the fact that Disney paid for that. And at the end of the Chevy commercial, it would say, and go see Star Wars. Now, the gospel is a much more important message than all of this advertisement. But no one says, here's the message of salvation, and bank at RBS, and buy milk from Tesco. It's not proclaimed in that way. Now why? Because God still explains it in the most humble ways. Jews demand a sign, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ and him crucified, which is a stumbling block, which is a scandal. And so it's a humble message, and it's preached by humble people. The way that God brings deliverance to the world is not always through the big, bombastic displays. It's through his church. It's through us. Despite our imperfections, despite our insecurities, despite our lack of resources, despite our lack of significance, it's through his church that he fills his spirit, empowering his people to proclaim his message. Whenever I was in Uruguay on a mission trip several years ago, we were working in this small jungle town. And there was a small Baptist church there that had met decades ago, but it had closed down. All that was left was the building. 
And so this building had been grown over by vines and plants and the sign out front that said Baptist Church had rusted away. And when you went inside, it was just plaster that had fallen from the ceiling. I said, I would love to start a new work here. And I would love to take people from my church to see if we can fix up this building so that a new work could begin. And so that's what our vision was. And that's what several people worked to see accomplished. Now, as we were working to fix up this building, and as we were working to find a pastor in Uruguay who could serve at this church as we tried to start a fresh work, I kept noticing off in the distance on top of one of the mountains a gigantic compound. And it was so ornate. And I went around town asking people, what is the place on top of the mountain? And every person said, that's the Richard Gear." And I said, Richard Gear, like, I must be having some sort of mistake in the translation. I asked the translator, what is Richard Gear in English? And they said, Richard Gear." I said, like, the actor, Richard Gear? See, si, yes, the actor, Richard Gear." I was like, what is the Richard Gear?" So I had to Google. No one could tell me. They just said, that's the Richard Gear." This was a compound that he had built. And famous people and wealthy people from America and Europe would fly to this remote part of Uruguay to practice Eastern religion. They would meditate and they would sort of use it as a, a nice hotel and retreat, but also a religious center. Now, the contrast could not be greater. On top of the mountain was the Richard Gear with its wealth and its prime location, and it was well known in the community. Everyone knew about it. And here was our small Baptist church covered in vines with a terrible roof with a sign that was rusted over. And no one knew we were there. We were next to the automobile shop, and we were next to what would be called here a garden center. Everyone walked by every day without noticing a Baptist church was there and could be there. And yet, in our weakness, we were ministering. And yet, in our weakness, we were moving forward. And here's the interesting thing. In the end, what displays the hope of the gospel? You see, as people go about their lives to the automobile shop, to the garden center, especially there in Uruguay where there was poverty. And they pass by this Baptist church building and they look in and they see people just like themselves who are struggling just like they are. And they can say, this is for me too. It's not something that's distant looking down on them. It's something there in their midst. It's something that's in their community. The gospel doing its work amongst all people, good news for all people. And so it's not flashy, and it's not ornate, but it has great significance. And so as we close out, that's the wisdom and the power of God that's on display. God using what seems to be small to do something that's great. God using the ministry of Jesus that seems so humble to do something great. God working in Isaiah's day something that might seem impossible, and yet it's great. And so as we close out, here we are in the town of St. Andrews. And next to us in the coming days will be a new 
location for the University of St. Andrews, in my biased and completely unobjective opinion, one of the greatest universities in the world. And here we are in St. Andrews, a town filled with, at least if you're me, many stores that you cannot afford to buy from. And we can be tempted to feel as though we are insignificant and that we're passed by. But what we do matters, and what we do at Christmas matters, because God uses us in all of our imperfections, and all of our struggles, and all of our lack of resources to bring this message, good news for all people, to all people in this town. And that's the point of Christmas. At least that's what we should be considering as we celebrate it.